Hi everyone and welcome to episode 70 of SAMA, a webinar series which invites experts to talk about their area of expertise. This week's expert is Dr. David Hanscom. David will talk about anxiety disorders and the truth about chronic pain. David is a board certified orthopedic surgeon specializing in surgical corrections of the cervical, thoracic, lumbar spine areas. He has been performing complex spine surgeries since 1986. That's 32 years ago. David is an expert in treating adult and pediatric spinal deformities such as scoliosis and kyphosis. A significant part of David's practice is devoted to performing surgery on patients who have had multiple prior spine surgeries. Early in his career, David noticed that most chronic pain is often caused by multiple failed spine surgeries, and that surgery procedures often made back injuries worse. So David used techniques developed by himself to resolve his own back pain, a pain he had tolerated for 15 years. He now teaches his patients how they too can overcome chronic pain. David is the author of the best-selling book, author of Back in Control, a surgeon's roadmap out of chronic pain. His honours include Best Doctors of America 2007 to 2018, Top Doctors 2018, and Alpha Omega Alpha, Linda University 1979. His website is backincontrol.com. So without much more ado, David, I'd love to welcome you to our show. It's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Now, just to kickstart kick the, uh, the discussion, what is the connection between anxiety disorders and chronic pain? Well, it turns out that anxiety actually is the pain. <clears throat> so let me back up in the story just a little bit. So I'm a spine surgeon. I've been doing spine surgery for 32 years. I went to the, one of the top spine fellowships in the world. And I get there by being really tough. My attitude was bring it on. And I honestly didn't really sense much anxiety until one day I was driving across a bridge in Seattle. And all of a sudden, I went from no anxiety to a panic attack. And literally 10 minutes, my entire life changed. Wow. So my thing was bring it up. I was really, really tough. And I started to breathe heavily. I started to sweat, started to pass out. And as with a classic panic attack, I thought I was going to die. So that marked the beginning of a 13-year tailspin that just got worse and worse and worse. And the traditional view of anxiety is that it's a psychological problem, correct? Right. Okay. So here's the problem with that. Anxiety is a neurochemical survival reflex. It's simply the feeling generated by the body's stress chemicals designed to protect you. So if you have a physical threat, you respond by adrenaline, cortisol, histamines, and other stress chemicals. And your body is full of these chemicals, and then you feel anxious. So you have to have that chemical surge to feel anxious. So anxiety is not primarily psychological. It's a neurochemical reflex to a threat. 
The reason why that's so critical is that this neurochemical reflex has been documented in research to be over a million times stronger than the conscious brain. A million to one. So if you want to do battle with this thing, you can't do it. So again, anxiety is a sensation generated by the body's stress chemicals. So when the threat resolves or disappears, your chemicals drop back down, anxiety disappears, and you're safe. The species of animals who paid attention to that impulse survived. The, the species who didn't survive that impulse didn't survive. So it turns out it's not only survival of the fittest, it's actually survival of the most anxious. So you had to be, in, you had to be, you had to pay attention to your environmental cues to stay alive, right? Yes. So humans have an additional problem compared to other living creatures that the research shows that thoughts and concepts create the same chemical reaction to stress that a physical threat does. So a mental threat and physical threat are processed the same way. Similar part of the brain, same chemical response, and then you feel anxious. The problem with thoughts and concepts is that you can't escape them. So you can either experience them, which we all do. What I did was suppress them, which you think you're suppressing them, but you're actually not. We try not to think about something, you actually think about it more, a lot more. Then the other thing that's relevant to the opioid epidemic is people try to suppress it. Since anxiety is a survival sensation, we'll do, is very unpleasant, We'll do anything to avoid it against a survival reflex. So basically, you have this massive neurochemical survival reflex, massive chemical response that allows you to feel anxious and survive. So the problem is with humans that you have this relentless assault of anxiety as you get older because you can't escape your thoughts. You either suffer, suppress, or mask these thoughts, but you can't escape them. Well, so anxiety tends to get worse as you get older. Why? Why would this, why would this survival technique be in humans when it's merely thoughts that can invoke it? What would this? Why would that have, through natural selection, bring it to an advantage? So language started about seventy thousand years ago. So humans, Homo sapiens, it's called the cognitive revolution. Started about seventy thousand years ago. So it turns out that consciousness actually formed with language. So it turns out that social connection is a huge need. So it turns out that the groups that could actually cooperate together had a higher chance of surviving. So that's one evolutionary reason why you had to have social connections in language. So when you were isolated, you had a much lower chance of surviving. So then, of course, if you're by yourself, your anxiety levels will go up. When you're with your tribe, so to speak, your anxiety levels would drop down. And indeed, when you're socially isolated, you, you develop the exact symptoms as in chronic pain. Same wow. symptoms. Wow. There's a book called Lonely out of Chicago written by a neuroscientist, and he points it out really clearly. And the research shows this is that when you feel socially isolated, it goes to a similar part of the brain as physical threat. You have the same chemical reaction, and you have, you have anxiety. So again, it's a survival reflex. Gosh, okay. And so of course these chemicals pumping through your body, they're gonna do something, aren't they? Yep. It turns out that mental threats for humans are a bigger problem than the physical threats because if somebody physically threatens you, you take avoidance action, chemicals drop, anxiety disappears, problem solved, right? right. So again, if you don't pay attention to your survival cues, why well, you don't survive. 
So we either solve the anxiety from physical threat or you don't survive. So when the thoughts keep coming at you, again, you can't escape them. So the essence of chronic pain is actually the sustained adrenaline result. The problem is when your body's full of stress chemicals, it has a major physical impact on your body. There's over 30 symptoms of a sustained adrenaline response. I say adrenaline, cortisol, and, and histamine. So I'll just say stress chemicals. So when your body's full of stress chemicals, it's like driving a car down the freeway in second or third gear. Your engine's racing, going way too fast, and your body starts to break down. So at the worst part of my chronic pain episode, which lasted about 15 years, I had 16 of these symptoms at the same time. So I had ringing in my ears, migraine headaches, tension headaches, burning sensations in my feet, itching in my scalp, um, skin, rashes, skin rashes would pop up over my entire body. I had extreme insomnia, couldn't sleep. I developed a full-blown, which was called obsessive compulsive disorder, which is extreme anxiety. I eventually went into a major depression, which again, another problem. I developed crushing, crushing chest pain. So again, what happens, the reason why there's so many physical symptoms is that when your body's full of these stress chemicals, Remember, each organ is going to respond in its own way. So, for instance, irritable bowel syndrome, which I didn't have that, but what happens with adrenaline, it's just on the blood supply to the stomach. Same thing with irritable bladder, just on the blood supply to the bladder. Uh, also, just on the blood supply to the frontal lobe of the brain. So, when you're under stress, the blood vessels constrict in the frontal lobe of your brain. And with my migraines, invariably on Saturday afternoon, I would finally get relaxed. Bam, terrible migraine. So I had terrible migraine since I was five years old. But it's that chemical, it's your body's chemical environment that makes the difference. So that's why there's so many symptoms of an adrenalized nervous system. So again, you have a sustained mental threat. You have this sustained chemical response. Each organ system responds in its own way. That's why there's so many different symptoms. That's incredible. Are there any other causes of chronic pain? that are non-physical? Well, that's a tough question because the answer is that the common thread, remember anxiety is a sensation generated by the stress chemicals. Yes. And it's odd why, for instance, some people, for instance, PTSD, fibromyalgia are part of the problem. So people develop fibromyalgia, which I didn't. Yes. So why maybe you might develop fibromyalgia and I didn't, nobody really knows the answer to that question. Okay. So, again, um, it, it also turns out it doesn't matter where the pain starts. In other words, people get convinced that, okay, I have pain. There must be something wrong. Let's fix the problem, and the pain is going to go away, right? Right. So I take your car to the shop. But remember, cars don't have pain fibers. There's nothing in the mechanical world that res remotely resembles pain. And remember, pain's an output. Pain's not an input. In other words, the input is vision, taste, touch, smell, etc. That's the input. Then your body interprets all these things at the same time, decides whether it's pleasant, neutral, or unpleasant. So if it's pleasant, you have oxytocin, the love drug. You have dopamine, the reward drug. Serotonin, antidepressant. And you have the GABA drugs, which are like Valium. So when you're at play and relax, it's an incredibly enjoyable chemical bath. So when you feel relaxed, you're feeling this chemical surge. So the bottom line is as far as solving chronic pain, and again, conversely, one of the reasons why I burn sensations over my entire body is that 
the analysts are show that when you're in an adrenalized state, it doubles the nerve conduction. And that would make sense from amplifies it dramatically. Mm. So what you're doing, you have an amplified response, you actually feel more pain. And guess what? When you feel more pain, then you're trapped and you have more adrenaline to try to escape. So anytime you're trapped, you become angry and then your body's really full of adrenaline. And one of the terms that Dr. Starno used years ago, which I think is appropriate, that when you're trapped in chronic pain, you end up, he called it rage. You end up in a rage. I call it the abyss where you're just trapped. There's no way out, no hope. Nobody's giving you a way out of the hole. People become incredibly desperate. They don't feel believed. They don't feel validated. And they get bounced around the medical system over and over and over again and become incredibly frustrated. The body chemistry goes, just goes through the ceiling. Gosh. So then you're really adrenalized. And the symptoms become way worse. And then for me personally, I was in chronic pain for 15 years. I had no idea what happened to me. I'm a physician. Nobody taught this to me. Honestly, I don't want to throw doctors into the bus completely because none of us are taught this. If I hadn't gone through my incredibly harsh experience, I would no clue about anything that we're talking about today. Nothing. That being said, the last five years of neuroscience research have given us very, very clear answers as to the nature of chronic pain. So we actually know the answer to chronic pain now. Okay, what is the answer? <laughs> okay, so I'm going to go back to the idea that Anxiety, anxiety is a sensation generated by the body's chemistry, yes. right? Makes sense? Mm. It's a million times stronger than your conscious brain. Yes. It's a survival reflex, so you can't control it. So the key is that when you get choice, people get rid of their pain or get rid of their anxiety, almost invariably people want to get rid of their anxiety. They can sort of deal with the pain. I mean, it's not great, not perfect, but a given choice of having anxiety at that level the rest of your life versus dealing with the pain, why it's actually the anxiety that drives people crazy. With the fallacy in surgery, which I went through this for many years, is that as a surgeon, you think, well, if I do a surgery and get rid of somebody's pain, then the anxiety is going to drop. That's actually not true. Because anxiety, once you get these circuits spinning away, they don't just stop just because you do an operation. In fact, the research shows that if you do surgery in the presence of chronic pain, you can increase the pain 40 to 60% of the time for a year, and then five to 10% of the time, it'll become permanent. So when you're operating, so first of all, these pain pathways become memorized, just like an athlete learning a skill. The memorization occurs in six to 12 months. So unless you acknowledge the existence of chronic pain, that's a memorized neurological problem, until you actually deal with the central nervous system part of this process, you're not gonna solve this with surgery. Actually, it makes it worse. So the, the solution lies in two principles. One of them is decreasing the adrenaline. Okay, as you decrease the adrenaline, anxiety drops. As the adrenaline drops, the nerve conduction improves. So instead of the nerve, as the nerve conduction comes back to normal, then you start feeling less pain. The second thing is called neuroplasticity. What we now know that I didn't know in medical school is that your brain changes every second. Every second your brain's changing. There's 80 billion nerve cells in the brain. There's these what's called glial cells that are the supporting structures of the brain that lay down an insulation called myelin. And they estimate there's actually more connection between the neurons in the brain than there are stars in the universe. There's an incredibly complex set of connections. So they change every second. 
Uh, so you can't control it, but you can direct it. So what you're doing, you're, you're basically changing the direction of the formation of these pathways. The metaphor I just read about this week on my website, I, I update my website every week, is that, and do you, you must speak Chinese, right? <laughs> You'll be surprised how little, <laughs> but I'm trying. It's a, it's a learned skill, right? Yes. So you go to classes. Mm. And you listen to tapes, and you talk to your people, and you you so it's like you're learning a new language. So over time, your brain develops a capacity to speak a new language. How did that happen? So your brain laid down new connections, new circuits that allows you now to speak a new language. How you didn't learn to speak a new language is by trying to not speak English, right? Right. So not speaking English is not going to teach us Chinese, right? Yes. So your brain's going to develop where it replaces attention. So with chronic pain, it's the same way. If you try to fix chronic pain, your attention's on the pain. So what you're doing, you're creating another nervous system, literally a nervous system within a nervous system, like a virtual desktop, where you're learning a new language. I call this language enjoying a new life, enjoying life. So it's actually a learned skill to learn how to play, how to relax, how to enjoy your friends, etc. So as you develop this new set of pathways and circuits, your brain shifts over that way. If you want to try to solve chronic pain, your attention on the pain is actually not on learning how to live an enjoyable life. So what you're doing with neuroplasticity as you go through processes, it's not positive thinking, but it's positive substitution. As you learn these new circuits, that's your brain starts to shift. As your brain shifts, anxiety drops, and the pain drops dramatically. So again, you didn't learn Chinese by not, not speaking English, you actually don't come out of chronic pain by trying not to be in pain. It's the same process. Okay, I understand. So that's, that's, that's the neuroplasticity part of it. And you can't do it in your head. You have to do it. There's a bunch of techniques that do that are very simple, but it's a repetition of, of what we call somatic tools that actually starts changing the brain. Okay. So you're engaging in practices that actually physically change your nervous system. Right. Understand. So I had a look on your website. There's it itemized four distinct steps, and within each step, right. there's several stages. Right. Um, and the variables set out. Uh, does your book go into more detail of the processes of each step? It does. Great. So here's the deal. The process is about ninety percent self-directed. So you don't need a pain clinic. Um, the processes aren't very, um, aren't very hard. And in medicine, there's a common feeling that if you don't find a structural problem, in other words, if you can't, if you can't find the cause of chronic pain, there must be a psychological issue. Well, again, it's a million-to-one ratio. This is a neurochemical survival response. Your body's full of stress chemicals. This is a physiological problem, not a psychological problem. Right. So psychology plays into a little bit, but this is primarily a biochemical alteration of your, of your whole body. So what happens, there's four stages, and again, the two processes are decrease the body's adrenaline, and the second part is actually creating new pathways, so instead of being stress automatic survival response, it's stress choice response. And as you start choosing a more thoughtful, relaxed response, then you start, your brain actually starts to physically change. So do you want to go through some of the steps in like stage one, for instance? Would that be helpful for you? Uh, yes, I'd love to hear you go through that. Okay. 
So the five steps are relatively simple. Is The first step is simply learn about pain. They did a study of Australia about a year ago where they put people in a group setting, group classroom, and they simply, I think it's an hour session each. They found out just by being educated about the nature of chronic pain, the pain dropped down 80% within 12 months just with education. That's it. So all of a sudden when you understand the problem, it's a lot easier to deal with, right? So the first step is understanding pain. The second step is understanding understanding your diagnosis. In other words, I still do workups. I want to make sure that I'm not missing something. So understand your diagnosis. Then also understand your situation in relationship to chronic pain because the second step is to treat every aspect at the same time. So there's multiple factors that affect pain, sleep, stress, physical conditioning, life outlook. All those affect your body's chemistry, affect chronic pain. So it's like fighting a forest fire, you treat every aspect at the same time. The third step is you take control. So, and I'm sorry why I confused this a little bit. So that's the general principles is awareness, treating every aspect at the same time, you take control. That's the general principles. Yes. So step one in the first stage is simply understanding chronic pain. Step two is called expressive writing, where you simply write down your thoughts, positive or negative, and simply tear them up, shred them. <laughs> and what you're doing is that you can't control your thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. But you can, it's just a separation exercise. So what you're doing, the thoughts are on the table. You're here. There's a space between you and your thoughts. So you can't control your thoughts, but you can separate from those. So that space is now connected with vision and feel. And it's also a very complex task to turn a thought into a motor function and occupies a lot of part of the brain. So there's now almost a thousand research papers that document that exercise works. Almost a thousand. So it's very effective. I will tell you in my own experience, I was in 15 years of chronic pain. I happened to pick up a book that said to start writing. I started to write. And within two weeks, for the first time in 15 solid years, I started to feel better. I could feel the shift. In my six weeks, it's probably 60% better. And by six months, again, other steps, it was fine. So the running is not the solution. It's just the awareness of separation. If you tear up the piece of paper for two reasons. One is right with freedom, be positive or negative, rational or irrational. But you also don't want to analyze the thoughts. Because if you're analyzing the thoughts, where's your attention? on the thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. So this is all separation exercise. That's it. So you tear up the piece of paper or shred it or burn it, simply to write them down, separate, done. The third step is called active meditation. So the writing does awareness and separation in one move. Then you have to redirect your brain to a different spot. So active meditation is about three to five seconds a mile from this. We'll just do it right now. So just drop your shoulders for a second and just feel where you're sitting. That's it. You simply change the sensory input. There's three parts to it. You relax, let it stabilize, and then pick a sensation. So let your shoulders drop. Let that stabilize. Yeah. Let your arms relax, hands relax. Yeah. Just feel the back of your chair. And feel where your feet are. Let your jaw muscles relax. Shoulders arms, hands, and just feel where your hands are. You can taste your food, listen to sounds. If you have any sounds in the room, just listen to the sounds. 
And one more time, jaw, shoulders, hands. That's it. So what you've done, you simply switched sensory inputs, basically an abbreviated, abbreviated form of mindfulness. The reason why I like it because it's real time. Three to five seconds during the day, you're really busy, just drop your shoulders. I don't know if you notice that my voice might have dropped a little bit. And so it just, it just increases the body's adrenaline, but also switches the sensory input. So that's the third step. The fourth step is sleep. Without sleep, this entire process doesn't really work. And there's a study out of, study out of Israel that showed that they looked at a four-year study with over 1,200 patients. They found out that lack of sleep actually caused chronic pain. It wasn't the other way around. So I, I, used to, I used to think that people in chronic pain couldn't sleep because of the pain. They found out in this very major study, there was the lack of sleep that actually caused the chronic pain, but it wasn't the other way around. So by far and away, sleep's number one, and until my patients are sleeping, this whole process really doesn't work very well. The expressive writing actually happens to help sleep. The yeah, meditation also helps sleep. Chapter 14 of my book really spends an entire chapter just on sleep, how to get to sleep. And it's been incredibly strong starting point. If you can't sleep, I mean, really within two to four weeks, by doing some combination of strategies, you should be able to sleep. The final step is one that's been fascinating and very powerful is that we ask, I say, look, let's pretend you're my patient right now. I, I did this all day long today in clinic. I say, look, you cannot discuss your pain ever again because where's your attention? It's okay. on the pain, right? Right. And it was so much people in pain talk about the pain, and I understand it. I did the same thing. I was in pain, and, and I wanted to share it. I wanted to solve it. So it's on, on this endless quest to solve the pain. But remember, you're not going to learn Chinese by not speaking English. You're not going to learn how to live a good life by not being in pain. You spend all this time trying to solve chronic pain, just like you're trying to solve your English, or you're really trying to learn Chinese. And so same thing here. You're trying to solve your pain, solve your pain, solve your pain. We're really trying to live a life that's enjoyable. So I said, when you walk out of my office, you'll never discuss your pain ever again with anybody, ever. Gosh, that's quite ever. a paradigm change, isn't it? It's, it's huge. And it, it, we came about it by accident, but it's been a huge shift. And people are pretty excited about it because it actually happens pretty fast. Because, again, if you're going to discuss your pain – your tension is right in the pain pathways. You're reinforcing them like crazy. And you're not living the life you want to live if you're complaining about your pain. I, I mean, I get I understand why you want to talk about your pain because it's so overwhelming. But it's not going to change if you keep talking about it, right? Right. So Think in terms of neuroplasticity, your brain's going to develop where every place is attention. So this discussing of pain just absolutely destroys your life. Also, really, really embeds pathways into your nervous system. The other thing I say, look, no complaining. You can't complain. Yes. Right? Yes. Where's your attention? It's not something negative, right? Right. So again, complaining generally doesn't solve anything. No gossiping. Gossiping doesn't help your life, doesn't help other people's life. You don't help forge new friendships by gossiping, right? Because the gossip always goes sideways eventually. So no time about your pain, no complaining, no gossip. And sometimes, which has become quite clear with the sort of the unpleasantness of the news these days, I go, quit watching the news. I mean, it's really ups upsetting. You can't control it. You're not happy about it. So again, your attention on all these current events that you have no control over, it's upsetting. So stop. 
So we're going to learn how to live an enjoyable life, watching the news every day, obsessively, is not going to help you develop that part of your brain. So again, step, stage one is learn about the pain. Number two is the expressive writing, write and rip. Number three is called active meditation. Just put your brain in something else. And just for a second, just feel where you're sitting. That's about it. Yes. The fourth one, sleep. The fifth one is not discussing your pain. No. So that's just stage one. Three more stages. But if you're in my office, I would say, look, here's stage one. I want you to do some homework. I'll see you back in two weeks. Yes. The reason why I wrote the book, because it's not hard, but it's just too complicated to explain in the office. But again, like I said before, simply understanding chronic pain in this one research study dropped it down by 80% within 12 months. Just understanding the problem. Gosh. So, yeah, it's been, what do you call I, I think I had five patients a day going pain-free. I had one guy who's been in chronic pain for 18 years. Young guy, on disability, and he came in today, he was so excited. So he is out of pain. He's back in the gym. He's been completely disabled. He's going to work on finding finding a new job, coming off of social security disability. He's as motivated as he can be. He has minimal pain. Anxiety is down. He's off all his pain medications. And this is a common, common story. It's a very consistent process. They've been coming so back. it's been, I mean, for me, it's been, it's been exciting. It's been really, really rewarding. The question's come in from Charlotte Garland, Industry Mind. If anyone wants to ask Dr. David any questions, just um, ask either in Facebook underneath the video stream or if you've registered in the Zoom software. Charlotte asks, what if there are emotional or mental issues that show out on the... Oh, yeah, what if there are emotional and mental issues that show out on the physical level? as anxiety or pain? What if? So I hope I'm answering the question correctly, but I want to go back to the part of the conversation we talked about before, mm. is that a mental threat and a physical threat have been shown in research to be perceived in the similar part of the brain, and this is interpreted as unpleasant. In other words, social pain and physical pain are considered the same thing. And when we talk about emotional issues, to me, anxiety is that sensation generated by the body's stress chemicals so you can think an anxiety-producing thought, but unless you have that chemical reaction in addition to the thought, you're not going to feel particularly anxious. So, and again, there's a huge debate about emotions, what emotions are, but everybody agrees that you actually can't feel a positive or negative emotion without that chemical surge of something. Yes. But the key issue here is that the psychology is important. In other words, it's very helpful to direct your Psychology is very helpful because it can give you support, wisdom, and guidance. The problem that traditional psychology has in chronic pain is a feeling if you really, really understand the problem, somehow it solves it. Unfortunately, if you really talk about the problem in detail, you're actually reinforcing these circuits. So again, I think in terms of, of neuroplasticity instead of psychology, the psychologist can be wonderfully wise in directing traffic to a different part of the brain. I, I will say that most patients on my process that i want to say my process so let me just say one thing really clearly everything in the book has been documented in hundreds maybe thousands of research papers to be the standard of care so right now there are a thousand papers that documented documenting the effectiveness of expressive writing we all we also we all know that mindfulness-based stress reduction works been well documented over and over again we know multidisciplinary pain clinics can be quite effective we know exercise makes a difference 
Forgiveness, which is stage two on my website, has a huge effect because you can't really move forward if you're holding on to the past. So your body, when you're angry, and the research shows that 95% of people in chronic pain have not let go of the situation that caused the problem in the first place. They're holding on to it. So the neuroscientists have seen that neurons that fire together wire together. So again, forgiveness is a big deal. And again, psychologists can help with that. But there's a field evolving called somatic psychology, which I work with a somatic psychologist right now, where you understand the problem. Remember, it's awareness, separation, reprogramming. It's how you do neuroplasticity. Psychologists can provide a very deep awareness. They can provide a little bit of perspective, which is the separation, and they can help redirect traffic. Where traditional psychology has been a bit of a problem is that you analyze the problem over and over and over again, so your brain's going backwards and not forward. So when I work with a psychologist that understands the foundational part of the process, um, it's wonderful. The problem is I don't have much access to psychologists because it's not really covered by insurance very readily. So I have psychologists, but right now the insurance companies aren't covering the process very well. And then the other question says, there are many modalities that can address the issues that trigger pain and anxiety. And that's absolutely correct. But the metaphor, I want to bring up the metaphor again about fighting a forest fire. It takes multiple strategies strategies to fight a forest fire because a forest fire is complex, right? Sure. There's the weather, there's a train, et cetera, right? Yes, yes. So it takes an air attack, ground attack, somebody coordinating the efforts. Mm. So chronic pain is the same way. Medicine has been guilty of actually providing random simplistic solutions to a very complex problem. So the key issue is when, when the health professionals help the patient take control, you treat every aspect at the same time. So better sleep might be 20%, stress management, stress management could be 25%, better sleep 20%, forgiveness 10%, chiropractic 10%, acupuncture 10%. So people say, well, I tried mindfulness and it didn't work. Well, it could be 15%. So it turns out that everything works in chronic pain a little bit, but nothing really works in isolation. So again, it's that multi-pronged attack that actually solves the problem. I understand. It's so exciting that you've discovered that these things in combination do work. I've had a comment from Camila Sudakanova. Um, Camila says, I take antidepressants and they help with pain. I stopped taking them for a few days and felt very depressed and started having more headaches. <laughs> and this, is, this is that pattern that we see over and over again. And yet the techniques that you show, which you're explaining now, they're, 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 they're simple, they can be done by everybody, um, but they've, right. got to be, they've got to be learned and then applied. And so right. it's, it's fantastic that you're going through the steps and, um, and uh, explaining just the best way of achieving this. Now, I've just touched on the second stage of the um, thing, which is um, the anger side, understanding the impact of the anger on your life and not holding it in. Are there I'm a, going back to the original part of it. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I'd finished. Go to the, going back to the original part of the conversation is that the antidote to anxiety is control, right? Something threatens you, you take evasive action. In other words, you control the situation, control it yourself, and problem solved, chemicals drop, anxiety is gone, right? Right. So when, this, when you lose c control of the situation that's causing the anxiety in the first place, your body secretes more stress chemicals, excuse me, 
secretes more stress chemicals in an effort to regain control. So more blood flow, more strength, more muscle flow, etc. So what happens, your body keeps some more stress chemicals and you become angry. So it turns out that anger and anxiety are the same thing. So the problem is that the feeling of anger actually covers up the feeling of anxiety. It's a very powerful role. The biggest block to actually solving chronic pain is people's willingness to give up their anger because it's the only thing they have left, including myself. So their genealogy of anger, we have a circumstance that you blame, then you're a victim, and then you're angry. The more legitimate your victimhood, the harder it is to let it go, right? Right. Being in chronic pain is a legitimate reason to be angry. You're trapped. Nobody believes you. You're bounced around the medical profession. Most treatments, by the way, that are prescribed in medicine have actually been documented to be ineffective for chronic pain. And we keep, we keep pretending that they're going to work, but they don't work. Mm. So anyway, so you're very frustrated, you're very trapped, and so your body's full of adrenaline. So you're angry at the situation that caused it or the person that caused it. So you have a circumstance that you, that you blame, your victim, and you're angry. Being in chronic pain is an extremely legitimate reason to be angry, right? Yes. The problem is, if you hold on to the situation that caused the problem in the first place, every time you think about that person's situation that caused the problem, of course, your body's full of adrenaline, right? Mm. So then your body is hyperadrenalized, the pain goes through the ceiling. I also remind my patients, look, think about a day that you're just angry. Forget about the pain for a second. When you're angry, the quality of your life is pretty uncomfortable. You're not very happy, right? So then you have the pain on top of the anger. Life is pretty darn miserable. So the second stage is forgiveness combined with play. If you remember when you're angry, you're full of all the stress chemicals. And when you're at play, again, the oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, and GABA drugs. And so the antidote to anxiety is play, but you're not going to be able to play if you're holding on to anger. Not, they're, they're incompatible, right? Right. So remember, we're in separation reprogramming. So forgiveness is a more complex way of awareness. You have to become aware that you're angry. And the separation is the forgiveness. And then your alternative is play. And so what's happened, we found this by accident, is that I go to the Omega Institute every year in Rhinebeck, New York. And my wife and I and daughter put on a workshop that's three days long. Sorry about this. i got to get rid of the speaker. Sorry, I'm on call. We'll get that later. Um, so what happens is that um, it used to be a five-day workshop. It's now done a three-day workshop. And it's based on awareness, hope, forgiveness, and play. And what we found out is that within, during that weekend, we create a structure that people feel safe. We tell multiple stories of people that are getting better, so we provide hope. So we teach them the nature of chronic pain. We give them hope. And then we work very hard on forgiveness. It's a big deal. There's different exercises that we do. And then the final thing is play. My wife's a professional tap dancer. She's not a psychologist. And so she does rhythm, little rhythms and clapping and tapping your feet. But have you heard of the cup song by chance? It's, it's a little hand rhythm. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. So she gets a group doing the cup song, which is sort of crazy. But when people start to laugh, within 12 to 24 hours after people start feeling comfortable in a structured environment, sharing, being back in contact with other people, remember social isolation causes chronic pain. As people start to relax and laugh in a structured environment, Pain disappears almost every time. Mm. 
So probably 80% of the participants go to pain-free within the weekend. It's been, it's happened, we've done it six workshops, it's happened every workshop every time, and it's been a remarkable experience. So that's where stage two is forgiveness combined with play. And again, going back to the original part of the discussion, this is about optimizing your body's chemistry, right? So if your body's chemistry is stressed, why you're going to feel physical symptoms and feel anxiety. When your body chemistry is full of the love drugs and antidepressants, et cetera, your body's going to feel relaxed. Yes. So the body chemistry is really key to this whole process. So that's where forgiveness is such a big deal. Okay. Um, disguises. You talk a bit about disguises and the importance of... Oh, that's my favorite. Yeah, this is my favorite. It, it, I mean, this is, the disguises of anger are unbelievable. I mean, I'm, I, I could be the most... It's by, by far my most highly developed skill is disguising my anger. Yes. So what happened, I had a tough background, very abusive childhood, and about age 15 years old, I decided I had enough. I basically shut the door in my life, and I created a new life, and I did it. Good grades, lots of fun, had a great time, and I did great until I had these panic attacks when I was 38 years old. I had no idea where it was coming from, but the term that the psychologist would use is I dissociated. I was I completely separated from my prior life, and... I did it, except what was happening is that in retrospect, my ears were ringing, my feet were burning, I had migraine headaches, I wasn't sleeping very well. So even though I didn't feel anxiety, my body was physically reacting, right? Right. So one of my identities is that I was raised in a very anxious, angry household, so that was normal. I didn't know what anger was, actually. Okay. So it was about six months after I started the writing exercises and dealing with my anxiety, my personal circumstances became so extreme, I had no choice but to acknowledge my anger, which just exploded on me in a very unpleasant way, to put it mildly. But then six weeks after that happened, I wish I had processed it better, my symptoms disappeared. Again, I had no idea what was going on at this time. I knew that I was angry. And I, I remember one day, it was Mother's Day 2002, I tried every possible solution you can imagine. And I realized that none of this was working. I literally gave up. I said, I'm in a victim role. And I, first of all, did not understand what a victim role meant. It was my first time the thought had came into my mind. And I now realize that being a victim is so powerful that nobody wants to give it up. Because when you're angry and a victim, you feel powerful. And so even though it drives the anxiety like a turbocharger, it actually comes up the feeling of anxiety. So the way I actually dealt with my anxiety is I was a perfectionist, which means I'm always angry. In other words, you have a circumstance that's less than perfect, so you blame yourself for the situation for being less than perfect, then you're always a victim of less than perfect, then you're always agitated. So that's my entire life is how I got to be a physician. So all of a sudden I came in direct contact with my anger issues in a very powerful, unpleasant way, Within six weeks, my physical symptoms began to disappear, and three months later, I was pain-free. Again, I didn't know what happened. I didn't know how I came into chronic pain, and I didn't know how I came out of it. So I'm looking backwards and now understanding the role of anger, did I figure out what actually happened back then? But the anger is a big deal. So the disguises for me are being right, but since you feel like you're right, you're justified in doing that. Um, I become a victim of my to-do list, pouring me too much to do. Uh, 
Like last night, for instance, I didn't sleep. So one of my to-do things was, you know, now I'm tired all day. I can be written being tired or just go put my head down and go to work. This book called Forgive for Good Canon in my practice about seven years ago. And Dr. Luskin points out in this book out of Stanford that anytime you tell a story to somebody else where you're the victim of this circumstance, he calls it a grievance story. And that person or situation is simply renting too much space in your mind. It turns out that forgiveness is a very selfish act. You simply not let the person or situation that you despise run your life anymore. So, yeah, I just, I endlessly, I actually, I'm sure one of my more treacherous disguises is I put a label on myself about four years ago of being enlightened. So I knew this stuff really well. I taught it. So sort of above being a victim, it was a horrendous way of simply suppressing anger. And so I, my, my wife wanted to kill me. So this label of being enlightened was a label. And it was, again, covering up all these issues that were, were beneath the surface. And so this is about connected and engaged thinking. So you don't want to suppress anger. You don't want to suppress anxiety. As you simply learn to just be with your pain or be with these emotions, you quit fighting them and start losing their power. That's amazing. Um, going on to step three, sorry, stage three. In the uh, okay. that I've mentioned in stage three, I lost your audio for a minute. I hope I'm, I'm talking at the right time. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, no, it's perfect. Now, stage three is play, the play stage. That must be the right. fun. Well, there's there's four stages. So the stage two is forgiveness combined with play. So on stage two, there's five steps that are associated with forgiveness. So first of all, become aware of the impact of anger on your life. In other words, recognize you're angry and recognize what an impact has on your life. Yes. Then you acknowledge the disguises. And then you um, basically, being a victim is so powerful, you're never going to wake up one day and say, I don't want to be a victim anymore. So the victim role is incredibly powerful. People don't want to give it up and that includes myself. Yes. So I've now become, instead of being enlightened, I now realize I go in the victim role every day. And then you make a decision, no, I'm in the victim role. I'm not going to do that. It's the only part of the process you have to make a logical decision five to seven times every day. You go in the victim role, you become aware of it, you simply switch directions. There's no shortcuts here. You're never going to wake up one morning and feel like you don't want to be a victim. It's too powerful. Okay. So then you make the decision to not be a victim. You have to acknowledge the role. And then you combine that with play pathways. And I made a decision six years ago in my practice that there's work, then there's play. But I made a decision I'm simply going to enjoy my work more. I'm enjoying my staff, I'm enjoying my patients, I'm enjoying this conversation. So I took an attitude of play into almost everything, which doesn't mean being delusional and happy all the time. I mean, just simply take a sense of curiosity and wonderment to everything. And things start to change. You become very aware. It's a lot of fun. So that's the forgiveness combined with play. Um, stage three is a consolidation process. Is that generally speaking, by this time, people are feeling much better. Anxiety is down. They're sleeping. They're starting to become creative. Remember, the language we're trying to learn is an enjoyable life, right? Right. So our default mechanism is anger and anxiety, which we know how to do that. And to develop this new set of circuits, like a virtual desktop on your computer, it takes a focused, persistent skill. 
So stage three, in my mind, is a consolidation stage of, of learning organizational skills, having family meetings, yes. um, understanding the tools it takes to move forward. You now want to create your vision of what you want to create. In other words, how do you want to live your life? Because you can't actually create a vision or actually move forward towards a different set of circuits unless you understand what that looks like. In other words, you can't accomplish anything in life unless you know what it looks like. So goal setting turned out to be a pretty big deal in this process because it really shifts your brain into a different part of the brain. So in, if your goal is to learn Chinese, that's a goal, right? Yes. And you take steps of how to get there. Mm -hmm. So whatever your enjoyable life is going to look like, you have to create that vision of what that looks like. Then part of it is learning organizational skills to actually execute the plan. So it's a commitment to repetition. It's a commitment to creating a vision. It's a commitment to execution. And then you actually, I mean, reading my book is just a book. Reading the book is going to do nothing for you. It's only by engaging in the tools that are going to solve the problem. Everybody does this completely different. The book is just a framework that, brings, that breaks pain down into its different parts. And so the way you solve your pains would be completely different than the way that I solved mine. Completely different. So the book provides a framework that breaks pain into a different parts, then you start finding your own solution. So stage three about is starting to execute the plan, like this gentleman today, he's going back to work. So we're starting to research the options. He, I, I asked him to buy this book called Getting Things Done by David Allen, which is a brilliant organizational book that I put on stage three. Um, what, what do you want your family to look like? What family vacations do you want to take? Because, um, and I'd love to do this on, on another podcast because we won't go in this, into this today, but it turned out that the family issues are number one. We can do all these interventions we talked about, but if you go home and you're triggered by your family and vice versa, it destroys everything. Right. So the family issues in the last 18 months have become probably our biggest part of the project. And again, that's part of this whole vision of what you want to do. Um, stage four is the ultimate solution to pain pathways or pain circuits is getting your life perspective back. And I've used the word spiritual journey, um, which to me is good food, good wine, good friends, you know, good hobbies. Again, creating this life that you want to create. But the ultimate final step is actually giving back. So instead of being centered on yourself, you actually become focused on other people. And again, you're, you're you don't solve chronic pain, but your attention goes a different direction. So as you really become aware of other people's needs and actually try ways to actually meet those needs, so whatever perspective you want to take as far as getting your life perspective back, that's the ultimate solution to chronic pain. So you moved a long ways away from your pain pathways. Yes, yes, I see. So you're creating this massive, yeah, you create this massive nervous system shift. So again, the language you want to create, I call the language an enjoyable life. And again, your default language is survival. So this is a very deliberate, persistent response of creating the life that you want to create. Yes, I understand. So um, one of the steps in the stage four is pass through the ring of fire. Right. If you could um, describe that, please. Explain this to us. That sounds quite interesting. So I want to just put that out. It's a little bit more an advanced concept. So if you, let's, let's pretend you're in my workshop. Let's take, let's take this last year. We had a great workshop. We had 20 people. So people come in Friday evening. We break up into small groups. The first thing I say to my group is, first of all, you can't talk about your pain. That's one of the ground rules. You cannot discuss your pain. And if you start to discuss your pain, every person in the group is going to ask you to stop. 
And people, their, their jaws drop because they actually think that they're analyzing pain in detail. Yes. So I said, the same thing is you actually not, you're not here to get rid of your pain. They go, what? I just had, I spent $2,000 traveling 3,000 miles to tell me that I'm not here to get rid of my pain. And they go, that's correct. Because if you're here to get rid of your pain, your tension's on the pain. So I call it the ring of fire. Is that the out, there's three rings. The center is green. Can you still hear me right now, by the yes, way? Yes, I can. Yes. Can you still hear me? Okay. Yes. So the center is green. The middle circle or the middle ring is red, which stands for anxiety, frustration, and unpleasant emotions. The green is the center. you simply centered and feel good about life, quiet, calm. Then the blue ring is what we do to accomplish things, own things, possess things. The blue ring is what we sort of do in life to escape the red ring. So what I did, I did it successfully for many years, is that I don't like anxiety and frustration. So I became a workaholic. I became smart, skilled, developed this wonderful life in the blue ring. But it's always outward. I'm always trying to escape the pain and anxiety. And it works for a while. But it's like a hovercraft that runs out of gas. You, you gradually sink back into the water. So eventually, when you run out of energy, you actually sink into the red ring. And what happened to me, I was really successful staying in this outside blue ring. I ran out of energy. I started sinking into the red ring. And by the time I was done, I was in the center green ring because there's nothing left. So the green ring is simply be centered and connected. And there's really nothing left to do because you're just there. So what happens is you train your brain to become comfortable with uncomfortable emotions. In other words, being with your pain is you learn to quit fighting your pain and actually being with anxiety frustration. Learning to be okay with uncomfortable sensations is the essence of the solution. Because when you are in the center, you want to try a new experience, new relationship, new adventure, new career, there's anxiety. So whether you're in the center going outwards or in the outward ring going back into the center, there's anxiety involved either way. Yes. So learning learning to be comfortable with anxiety, I don't always word comfortable because you know, I'm not asking you to be happy about being anxious. Because you just train your brain not to be as reactive to different stresses, the anxiety does drop. So you have to train your brain to be less reactive and become comfortable with uncomfortable situations and emotions, then your body has less adrenaline. And the goal of the process is to move forward with your life, with your pain. And so as you move forward with your life, with your pain, paradoxically, there's a much higher chance you're going to leave the pain behind. Right, right. So it's ownership of the pain and acknowledgement. Was that? It's acknowledgement and uh, acceptance of the pain, not, but still not living. I don't, I don't want to use, yeah, no, that's correct. Except acceptance is a pretty tricky word because it's sort of an intellectual word for this massive reflex. So I, I like, I actually prefer the term being with the pain. In other words, allow yourself to feel angry. Okay. You don't want to suppress anger. You don't want to suppress emotions. Yeah. So you have to learn to actually live and be with the pain. Yes. And that's, that's the, so it's a little different than acceptance. Okay. Could you explain what final will is on the final step? So people have a, people have some type of, so a lot of people's goal is to be pain-free and never be in pain. Well, that's not life. Remember, mental pain and physical, I'm sorry, mental threats and physical threats are processed the same way. So stress is always going to be there. You're always under stress. So what happens, people are out of pain, they feel great for a week or two or maybe even six months. All of a sudden they get triggered, pain comes right back. So the pathways are permanent. You're going to always be triggered. 
There's always good days and bad days, good weeks and bad weeks. So by understanding that it's, and I'll use the word accept. So you're going to accept the fact that you're going to fail. You're going to go back into pain. And for a long time, I, again, when I had the label of being enlightened on myself, when I would fail, I'd be very angry about failing, which, of course, I doubled down on the anger, right? So yes. you're going to be triggered, fine. You're going to be angry, which is fine. You're going to be anxious, which is fine. So as you learn to actually be okay with the failures, then it's a lot easier to keep moving forward. So failing well is actually a really key part of this process. Great. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a, been an amazing voyage you've taken us through. Your own personal voyage of your own chronic pain, how you overcame it, how you drew from many resources and found from your own personal experiences what the solution was. But more importantly, you've applied them to not just two or three people, but to thousands of people. You've written a book. You've um, established little communities, pockets of, um, of, very, um, you know, of, of classes throughout the world. What you've done is very highly commendable. So, um, well, thank you. I, I, I'd love to thank you for being on our show and teaching us what we need to know to overcome. Yeah, thank you. The yeah, um, a wonderful interview. I really enjoyed it. The, the steps that you've described, anyone can do that. If, well, I really, fully, highly recommend people buy the book that was uh, by uh, Dr. David. He, um, the book is Back in Control. Um, his website is backingcontrol.com. Uh, please have a look because there's a lot of information on the website. There's a blog. There's descriptions of the different stages, the steps within each stage. And gosh, it's just a, a, it's a wealth of information. You don't see it anywhere else. I was actually very surprised when I saw it. You're very generous with the information. And I am going to buy your book and I'm going to read it. <laughs> Um, Let me know. And, you know. We have emails. So we'll keep in touch. So I appreciate this very much. Okay. Well, thank you. So fantastic. Day. Have a great day. All right. Bye-bye. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.